Good to be back. I've had a couple of weeks off, uh, enjoying some holidays, which has been good. I think a lot of you have as well, but we're back. Good to be back at church. Uh, my name's Matt. I'm one of the pastors here. So let's pray, and then we'll jump into that psalm that Jay just read out. Father, we, we thank you for your word in particular. We thank you for the psalms. We thank you that in them that you comfort us and you encourage us and you challenge us. Uh, Lord, we pray that as we open up your word this morning, that your spirit uh, would speak to us and would show us that you are the true God uh, and that the idols that we so often chase after instead of you, would, would you show us that they are nothing. Father, would you speak to us this morning? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, that psalm that was just read out by Jade is dealing with this topic of idols. Uh, and reminds me of this great story that you get in the Old Testament in, in the book of 1 Kings, uh, chapter 18. You might know the story. Uh, the prophet Elijah, who is the last prophet of God left because all the others have been killed, uh, goes up against or challenges the prophets of the, the false god Baal. Uh, 450 of them and what he does is he calls all the people together and he says this he says how long will you waver between two opinions if the Lord is God follow him but if Baal is God follow him and so he sets up this challenge to see who is the true God and so he gets two bulls he gets some wood and he makes a suggestion he's like okay let's get two altars and uh, you can put the wood on the altar, you can put the bull on the altar, and then you cry out to your God to rain down fire onto the altar. And that will show us who is the real God. And now all the people who are there are like, yeah, that's, that's a good idea. Let's, let's do that. That sounds fun. And so Elijah says, well, right, yeah, you guys, you prophets of Baal, you can go first. And so they prepare the animal and the wood on the altar. And then they start to call out to their God. You go, Baal, answer us. They start to dance around the altar that they had made, but there's no response. This goes on for a few hours, then Elijah gets a bit sick of waiting, and so he starts to taunt them. Uh, he says, shout louder. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he is deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. Now, I love the, the ESV translation of this. It doesn't say busy. It translates it as it really is. It says he was is he rel uh, relieving himself? As in, maybe he's on the toilet. Maybe he can't hear you. And so they shout louder. And they cut themselves with swords and spears. And this goes on all the way until the evening. But there's no response. There's no answer. Nothing happens. And then it's Elijah's turn. And so he rebuilds the altar of God that had been destroyed. And he puts on the wood and he puts on the sacrifice. And then in case that's not hard enough, he, he gets some people to go and fill up four large buckets of water and he gets them to tip it all over the altar. But that's not even not enough. He says, do it two more times. And so three times they pour these large buckets of water all over the offering, all over the wood. It goes down into the, uh, the trough that's been made around the outside. And then he prays to God. He says this, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord. Answer me so that the people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. And then what happens? 
The fire falls from heaven, burns up the bull, burns up the wood, burns up the altar and the trench that was full of water. Everything's burned up and all the people look at it and are amazed and they fall on the ground and they cry out, the Lord, he is God. Now, it's a great story, if you know the story. It's even in one of my kids' Bibles that I was reading to my kids the other day. I was pretty happy about that. It made it into the kids' Bible. But as we start a new year, as we think about what it means to be Christian as we start this new year, I want to challenge us today with what Elijah said to the people. Do you remember what he said right at the start? He said, he said how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, we'll follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. And so that's the question I have for us today. Because I think one of our biggest temptations is to, to say, yeah, I trust in God. But functionally, what we're doing is putting our trust in idols. We say we believe in God, but the things we really trust for our security, for our health, for our comfort, for our whatever are the idols that we've placed in our lives. And so, Grace City, how long will we waver between these two opinions? If the Lord is God, well, let's trust and follow him and stop putting our hope in idols. And so let's jump in. Let's have a look at this psalm, Psalm 115. If you've got a Bible, it'd be great to have that open, but I'll bring it up on the screen as well. Now, like I said, this psalm, the psalmist is encouraging the people to not trust in idols, but that's not where it starts. Uh, it starts by first addressing God with this declaration of God for his glory. And right up front, it sets, a, sets the tone for the rest of the psalm. So have a look at verse 1. It says, Not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory. And so right at the beginning of this psalm, the statement is that God is God, not us, and therefore he is to be glorified. Remember the Ten Commandments when God gave the Ten Commandments? What's the first one? Well, it's that you shall have no other gods before me. Some of the translations say, no other gods besides me. Really what it means is you have no other gods in his presence, in God's presence. The point is that uh, not only that we are to have no, uh, that God is to be number one, but he's to be the only one. And then the second command flows out from that. Second command is this, says you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down and worship uh, bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord, am a jealous God. God is jealous for his glory. He is righteously jealous. Uh, he won't let his glory go to anyone or anything else. To do that would be to say it's God and not him. And so he can say this in Isaiah 42. He says, I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise idols now so so often in the bible idolatry that is the worship of idols is is shown to us through the lens of what's called spiritual uh, adultery that we're in a covenant relationship with god that we're in a relationship with him and when we go and turn to other gods and start worshiping them we're being unfaithful to our god it's called spiritual adultery now i'm married and if I said to my wife, look, Shell, I've got a couple of other women on the side, but don't worry because you're number one. You can't do that, can you? 
And it's the same with God. He is a jealous God. He will not let his glory go to anyone else. He's to be our only God. And he is the only God. And so the psalm begins with this declaration of God for his glory. It's putting God in his rightful place. Now, just as an aside, because I read this this week and I thought it was interesting. Um, William Wilberforce, you know who William is? Uh, he was uh, the parliamentarian in England who fought for over 46 years to abolish uh, the slave trade. And when the bill was finally passed, um, after all those years, he went home and meditated on that verse. Not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory. Well, that was an interesting little tidbit. But let's move on. The psalm then pivots in verse 2. And the attention turns uh, to a question that has come from the surrounding nations. We see it in verse 2. It says, why do the nations say, where is their God? Now, I don't think this is a question asked in curiosity or to be inquisitive or to, to really find out an answer. It's a question that's asked to mock where is he? We can't see him. Where are your idols? Where are your images? Where are your statues to show your God? All the nations around had these idols that they would make and then bow down and worship. And there's something really powerful about that, having these images, these statues that you can see and you can touch and you can feel. They're physical. But the God of Israel, there was no images of him. He commanded not to make images. He was invisible. He was spirit. He was, he was transcendent. And so the people around of the nations looked around at Israel and mocked it and laughed at them. Where are you, where's your God? We can't see him. But the psalmist has an answer. We see it in, in verse 3. Where is our God? Well, he's not here on earth. Our God is in heaven. That's a pretty good answer. I like that. It, it doesn't mean that he's distant. It means that he's ruling and he's reigning. Uh, he's not part of the creation, that he is the creator ruling over it. And in verse 15, at the end of the psalm, it says that he's the maker of the heaven and the earth. And in verse 16, the highest heavens belong to the Lord, but the earth he has given to mankind. And then the psalmist adds a second line to the first one. Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. Now, the word here for uh, please is the word will, uh, as, as in God can do whatever he wills, and whatever he wills will happen. He's sovereign. He's all-powerful. He's the one who is in complete control. He's God. Now, that's a pretty good answer, isn't it? For where is your God? Well, he's in heaven, which he made, and from there he's ruling and reigning over all things as his sovereign will is done. It's a pretty good answer. That's not a God that you can put on your mantle in your home and light a candle to it or put it in your back pocket and carry around with you. That's a big God. Then the psalmist turns our attention to the alternative by contrasting the God of heaven with the idols of the surrounding nations. We see it in verse 4, so have a look. It says, but the idols are silver and gold made by human hands. See the contrast? You've got the God who has made the heavens and the earth contrasted with these idols which are made by human hands. 
And then the psalmist gives us a description of these idols. And the point is that although they are physical, although you can see them and touch them, although they look like they're powerful and they're covered with silver and gold, that they are useless and senseless. Look from verse 5. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear, noses but cannot smell. They have hands but cannot feel, feet but cannot walk, nor can they utter a sound with their throats. they just empty images with no power. They cannot speak, they cannot move, they cannot walk. They look like they have all this power, but in reality they have none. They cannot do anything. And you see this throughout the Old Testament. In the passages like uh, Jeremiah chapter 10, there's another one. They cut a tree out of the forest, and the craftsmen shape it with his chisel. They adorn it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nails so it will not totter. Like a scarecrow in a cucumber field. What a great line. Scarecrow in a cucumber field. Their idols cannot speak. They must be carried because they cannot walk. And then the conclusion, do not fear them. They can do no harm, nor can they do any good. Isaiah chapter 44 is probably the most devastating critique of idols you, you get in the Old Testament. It's worth going there and reading it through. But one of the sections that's in Isaiah 44 is Isaiah mockingly impressed with how these idol worshippers can know which half of a piece of wood is their God and which half is firewood. And so it says this, it says, Half of the wood he burns in the fire, over it he prepares his meal. He roasts his meat and eats his fill. He also warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm. I see the fire. The rest he makes a god, his idol. He bows down to it and worships. He prays to it and says, Save me. You are my God. Now the point is clear, isn't it? These idols are foolish. They have no power. They cannot protect or save you. They're, they're man-made objects, lifeless. But here's the thing. Because this psalm wasn't written, those other passages I just read out, weren't written so that we could have a bit of a laugh at people who worship idols, as if we could think, you know, those silly primitive people, how could they do that? Now, th this psalm wasn't written to the nations who worship the idols, it was written to God's people. It was written to us to remind us of the futility of idols. As you read through the Bible, time and time again, you, you see God's people turning away from God and turning to idols and worshipping them instead of the true and the living God. They keep forgetting God and their hearts waver and are turned to idols. Now, in a church like ours, with so many people who have moved here from overseas, often from um, eastern countries, uh, you may have come from a country where uh, idol worship is a regular thing. It may, may have been part of your family and your upbringing. It may even be that as, when you go home, there's still idols in your own home. And if that's you, let this psalm be a reminder to strengthen you against that temptation to trust in them or to go back to them. But I'm assuming that for most of us, 21st century in Sydney, that we're on board with the idea that idols are just man-made objects. 
Well, if that's here, my warning is be careful. Because if you think that's all that idols are, you'll miss out on seeing the idols in your own life. Because idolatry is not confined to worshipping of golden statues or in a shrine or things like that. Anything can become an idol for us. And the idols that we often bow down to are idols in our hearts and in our minds. Not on a shelf or in a temple. And so, what is an idol? What is an idol? Well, an idol is anything uh, or anyone that would take the place of God in your life. Anything or anyone that would take the place of God in your life. It can be an object, it could be an idea, it could be a philosophy, a habit, an achievement, a person that to any degree diminishes your trust and your loyalty to God. Or to put it another way, it's any, it's, uh, if anything becomes more fundamental to you than God for your happiness, for your meaning, for your identity. If that's what it's become, then it's an idol for you. Tim Keller, in his excellent book on this topic of idols called Counterfeit Gods, says it this way. He says, an idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything that you seek to give you what only God can give. And what makes idols so hard to see is because it's usually really good things in our lives that we turn into idols. It's the good things that God has given us that we, given us, that we turn into ultimate things. And when we make good things, ultimate things, and put our trust and our hope in them, well, they're the God that we're believing in. They're our functional saviour. And so the question is, what are the idols in your life? What are the things that you are trusting in instead of God? The things that you think will give you joy and fulfilment and purpose, meaning. Because if you keep trusting in those you won't be able to grow spiritually. You won't be able to, con- to keep trusting God, to be keep coming more like Him. You need to be able to identify those idols, but then you also need to be able to expose them for what they really are, and then to be able to destroy them, to get rid of them out of your life. And so that's what I want to do, just for a few moments, is I want to look at those three things. I want to see how do you identify idols in your life, how do you expose them, and then how do you destroy them? Firstly, we need to identify the idols in our life. Uh, Rosaria Butterfield, who uh, wrote an excellent book on Christian hospitality. I spoke about this, I think, last year. Um, It's called The The Gospel Comes with a House Key. She says it this way. She says, One very uh, difficult aspect of sin is that my sin never feels like sin to me. My sin feels like life to me, plain and simple. My heart is an idol factory. We turn things, we see them, we love them, we turn them into idols. And my mind is an excuse-making factory telling us, no, that's not an idol. Convincing us, no, I haven't turned that into an idol. Now, for some of us, when I ask, what are your idols? You will know straight away. You know the things in your life that you've put in the place of God. But I think for most of us, we become blind to them. Our minds convince us that they're not idols. Here's a, here's a list of some of the things that I think that we 
might be tempted by to become idols in our lives. Ideologies can become idols in our lives. Political movements can, can become idols, thinking they're the things that are going to save us. Family, we can turn into an idol. Children, romantic relationships, money, sexual pleasure, career, beauty, success, intellect, religion, comfort, pleasure, all these things and, and so many more. We can, mostly good things that we can turn into God things. Now, how, how would you know if any of these have become idols in your life? Well, here's some questions that I think you could ask to help identify them. You'd ask questions like, do I trust more in that thing than I do in God? Or do I love this thing more than I love God? Or think about your time. How much time do you invest into that? How much thought do you give it? How much money do you spend on it? Or you could ask questions like, do I think this is the thing that's going to give me salvation? Or you could ask, if I was to lose that thing or that person, would it not only make me upset, but would it destroy my life? Would it make my life not worth living? If that's the case, well, that's an idol. Now, what I want to do is just take a few minutes and try and take a few of those examples uh, and try and flesh them out a little bit and see if that's going to be helpful. So career. Now, Sydney's all about career. I used to live in Newcastle. And when I first moved to Sydney, I could, I could see that idol so clearly. Newcastle was all about leisure. You work enough just so you can have as much time off to enjoy whatever leisure activity you want to do. But when I came to Sydney, everyone's just all about work. All you talk about is work. But then I could look back and I could see the idol in Newcastle. It, it wasn't that it was better than Sydney, it just had a different idol. Now, career isn't necessarily a bad thing. A career can be a really good thing, but it, I think it's one of those really easy ones for it to become an idol, where you start to find your identity in your career. You identify yourself as by what you do. It becomes the thing you think about and invest all your time in. Uh, you start to think that's going to be the thing that's going to give you purpose and fulfillment in life. And so you start making sacrifices to the idol of career. You sacrifice time with your family and your kids for the sake of your career. More time in the office and less time for your friends and for your community and for church. And over time, you become enslaved to it. So have you made career into an idol? Or is that a temptation for you? For most of you, you're sort of starting out in your career journey. Is that a temptation for you? Be careful of that. What about romantic relationships? Is it only when you're in a romantic relationship that you feel loved and valuable? Because if that's the case, then it's quite likely that you've made relationships an idol in your life. And you'll probably end up in relationships that you should never have gone into in the first place. You'll make compromises because your, uh, to your values because the love and the acceptance that you get from those relationships is more important to you than the love and the acceptance that you get from God. And so you'll find yourself in a relationship you should have never considered in the first place because it's taken the place of God in your life. And when those relationships end, well, then you aren't just sad, but you're devastated by it. Life's not worth living. What about beauty? 
This is a good-looking church. Have a look around. Some good-looking people in this church. Always an exception to the rule, but most, most people, like I've been to a lot of churches, this is a pretty good-looking church. But our culture, I think, has elevated beauty and body image to a God status. It's an idol in our culture. Now, think about a gym. When you go into a gym and you have the mirrors there, why are the mirrors in the gym? Are they there so, you know, you can see if you've got good form when you're doing an exercise? That's not what they're there for. What are they there for? So you can look at yourself in the mirror, check yourself out. That's what they're there for. Now, beauty is a good thing. God has created things to be beautiful. But the problem is that we have taken a good thing and we've elevated it to an ultimate thing, to a God thing. Our culture is obsessed with beauty and body image. Pretty sure I read a little while ago that Australia is now uh, the number one country for se- spends the most amount of money on beauty products and plastic surgery out of any country in the world. The question is, has this cultural idol become an idol in your own heart? Do you get your self-worth from how you look? Do you spend all your money on it thinking that if I just had these clothes or this outfit or this hairstyle or whatever it is, I'd be happy? Because if you do that, you'll end up destroying yourself because you'll never be good enough. You'll never feel pretty enough. You'll always be left feeling ugly. Here's one more. This is for those among us who would call yourself a Christian. Um, Has God become an idol for you? You might ask, how is it that God could become an idol? Well, it's when you take the God that you want to believe in rather than the God who has revealed himself to us in the scriptures. That we make God in our own image. That we read what the Bible says, I don't like that, I like this bit, I'm going to take that and reshape God into this image and leave those bits that I don't like. That's turning God into an idol. When you say something like, I could never believe in a God that whatever, You're in danger of turning God into an idol, into a man-made idol who you elevate and worship rather than the God who has revealed himself to us in Scripture. So what are your idols? Because we need to be able to identify the idols that are in our hearts that we all have. But it's not just enough to identify the idols. That's step one, but you then need to be able to expose them for what they really are. Idols can never do what we hope, what they promise. They can never live up to our expectations. After all, what we saw in verses 5 to 7 is they have no real power. They're nothing. They're just man-made, inanimate objects. But did you notice how the psalmist concludes that section? We see it in verse 8. Have a look at verse 8. It says, Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. It's a warning that comes at the end of this section and it's saying you will eventually become what it is that you worship. And if you worship an idol, then you're going to become like it, empty, lifeless and worthless. David Foster Wallace said it this way, he says, everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. 
worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you'll always feel ugly. Worship power and you'll end up feeling weak and afraid. Worship your own intellect being seen as smart and you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. And so, although idols have no power, there's a sense in which idols have an immense power over us because they they don't give us the freedom that they promise. Instead, they enslave us to them. We become their slaves. And in the end, we become like them. Now, as Christians, what is sanctification? Well, it's meant to be becoming more like Christ. But when you put your trust in idols, instead of becoming more like Christ, you become more like the idol that you are bowing down and worshipping. And so G.K. Beale, in uh, his excellent book called We Become What We Worship, says this. says, people will always reflect something, whether it be God's character or some feature of the world. If people are committed to God, they will become like him. If they are committed to something else, some other, uh, something else, to something other than God, they will become like that thing, always spiritually inanimate and empty like the lifeless and vain aspect of creation to which they have committed themselves. So we need to identify our idols. We need to expose them for what they really are. And then thirdly, we need to be able to destroy the idols in our lives. So how do you do that? Well, that's where the psalmist goes in the rest of the psalm. He says, instead of trusting in idols... He reminds us to trust in God instead. Have a look at verses 9 uh, to 11. What you get here seems to be a a call and response. Uh, The Psalms were written for corporate worship in ancient Israel. That uh, They would do it in their services. They would stand up and sing it. And it's almost like someone calls out the first line, all you Israelites trust in the Lord. And then they would respond, he is their help and shield. House of Aaron, trust in the Lord. And they would respond, he is their help and shield. You who fear him, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. He's addressing three groups of people here, Israel as a whole. And then he addresses Aaron, that's the priests. And then he addresses uh, the converts to Judaism, the the God-fearers. And for each one of them, it's the same call, trust in the Lord. Don't trust in idols. They can't help you. God is your help and your shield. And we need to keep reminding ourselves of this. And then comes a promise. It's a promise of blessing. You see it five times in these next verses. The Lord remembers us and will bless us. He will bless his people Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, small and great alike. May the Lord cause you to flourish, both you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord. Now, what it's not saying here is some sort of transactional thing that if you trust God, then that will lead to blessing, like it's an A-B sort of formula type thing. That's not what's going on here. It's saying, trust God because he's the one who remembers you and the one who can actually bless you. Those idols can't do anything. Remember back in verse 1 when it said, not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name be glory. Why? Well, because of your love and faithfulness. God will bless his people, not because they have been faithful to him, but because of his love and faithfulness to them. 
And so how do you destroy your idols? Will you hold them up against the true God? This is what the psalmist does. He holds them up. And when you do that, you will see that idols are nothing. They are empty and worthless compared to the true and the living God. But I think we can take it a step further than the psalmist. Remember the question that in verse 2 that sort of started this whole thing? Where the question was from the nations, where is their God? Well, the psalmist's answer that he gave was, our God is in heaven, which is true. He's there ruling and reigning. But I think we can add more to that than the psalmist could. Because in Jesus Christ, what we have is the invisible God of heaven come to us to make himself known. He has put on flesh. He has a mouth so that he could speak to us and reveal the words of God. He had eyes so he could see the suffering of this world. He had ears that he could hear our needs. And he had hands and he had feet that were pierced for our sins. In Jesus, we have a God who doesn't take our life from us. But we have a God who gave his life for us. To free us from our idols. To deal with our sin of idolatry. And to give us true life. Give us all the things that our idols can promise and never deliver. And so, Grace City, if the Lord is God, and I think that's what we believe, then let's destroy our idols and trust in Him. Let's stop wavering between the two. Let's get rid of our idols, trust and follow our God. So let me pray that we do that. Father, our hearts are idol factories. They're so easily turned from you to other things, good gifts often that you have given us, that we turn into our functional gods, our saviours. Lord, we repent of that. Would you forgive us for that spiritual adultery, for our unfaithfulness to you? Father, would you help us to identify the idols in our hearts, to expose them for what they really are, that they are worthless and they're inanimate objects that cannot save us, that cannot help us. And that we would destroy them and turn back to you, the true and the living God. Father, we thank you that in Jesus we see you for who you are. We thank you that in Jesus he has served us by giving his life for us. We pray that we would trust him and follow him all the days of our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name.